The scripture today is from Exodus 13, 17 through 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, least the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you. Um, good morning. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad that y'all are with us to worship this morning. Um, for the past several weeks, if you don't know, we've been going through the book of Exodus together, which is the story of how God led his people from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. Last week, uh, Drew took us through a very powerful but a very difficult section of Exodus, chapters 11 and 12. That sermon's available online and, and is well worth listening to if you happen to miss it. But in summary, Pharaoh refuses to release the Israelites nine different times when Moses comes to him. And so God finally sends his greatest punishment on Egypt. He kills the firstborn of every family in Egypt. And only those who covered their door frames with the blood of an unblemished lamb were spared. And so in that passage, Drew talked about the need for substitution in the face of God's judgment for sin. So again, it's really worth listening to if you missed it last week. But this morning, we're going to pick up where Drew left off. And I want to do that first by having you imagine that you're an Israelite now preparing to leave Egypt. You were born into slavery. You were born into a country that all of your family tells you isn't actually your home country but it's the only one that you've ever known. You've been raised believing in a God who made promises to your ancestors, but he's been silent your whole life until just recently. A man named Moses appears claiming to be a messenger from this God. He demands that Pharaoh release you from slavery he performs all these miraculous signs of judgment on Egypt for their evil. These signs confirm to you that this God is real and that he seems to be on your side, but you still don't really know who he is. And so you wonder, are these signs going to work? You know that Pharaoh is evil and stubborn. Is he really going to release you and your family, your friends, your people from a lifetime of slavery, suffering, death, 
It seemed uncertain for a while. Over and over again, Pharaoh seemed determined to keep you enslaved, to stand up to God until this last judgment. See, when the elders of Israel came to your family and said, you need to kill a lamb and you need to put the blood on your doorposts and then you need to eat a special meal and you need to eat it quickly and you need to be prepared to leave in the morning, you were confused, to say the least. But after all the plagues and all the punishments that you'd seen over the last few weeks, the fear of God's judgment was not something that you wanted to question, so you obeyed. And in the morning, the news came. Nearly every home in the country had someone dead, except the homes with blood on the doorposts. And Pharaoh, now broken by your God, is letting you go. And it's time to leave. To leave the only home that you've ever known. To follow this man Moses that you just met. And to follow a God who went from a lifetime of silence to a thunderclap of judgment and death and blood in a matter of weeks. Can you imagine how you would feel? How absolutely confused you would be, how many questions you would have about God, because your entire world has been flipped upside down. And then, look at verse 17, the first verse of our passage this morning, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. After all that, you're now heading in the wrong direction. The land of Canaan, the promised land, the land that you grew up hearing about, is northeast of Egypt. Everybody knows that. There wasn't any geographical confusion about where the promised land was. The shortest route is to go northeast, to go along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, up into modern-day Israel but you begin by heading southeast. So you begin the journey not knowing where you're going, why you're going there, following a man you've only known for a few weeks who claims to be a messenger from God, and you just witnessed God punishing Egypt with plagues and death unlike anything you've ever seen before. So if I'm going all through this, if I'm an Israelite leaving Egypt, the big question in my mind right now is, who is this God? Where is he taking me? And that's the question that I want us to be concerned with this morning. Because I think it's a question that we all ask today. I often find myself thinking that God is very silent. Or when I do see him working, I often don't understand what he's doing. Or I even believe that he's leading me in the wrong direction. And so I ask, God, who are you? What are you doing? And I think that many of you, when you're alone, 
when you don't seem to know who God is, or he seems silent, or he seems to be taking you in the wrong direction, in those difficult, those uncertain moments, I think you ask the same thing. Who is this God? And so this morning, I think this passage has some answers to help us. I think it shows us two aspects of who God is. So let's begin by looking back at verse 19. It says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. That's kind of an odd verse, right? They're leaving the land, and there's this random verse about someone, Joseph, who if you just read Exodus, you don't know who he is, and about his bones. Well, in that verse, we're reminded that the book of Exodus is intimately connected with the first book of the Bible, Genesis. In Genesis, God made a promise to Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, to bless him, to give him descendants, and to give him a promised land. Decades after Abraham, his great-grandson, Joseph, is sold into Egyptian slavery by his brothers. He eventually escapes that slavery, and he becomes a ruler in Egypt. And then during a famine, his brothers come to Egypt looking for food, not knowing that he's still alive. He meets them. To make a long story short, he forgives them. He invites them and the rest of their family to come and live in Egypt where there's food. And that's where the book of Genesis ends. But Joseph knew that Egypt was not the land that God had promised to his family. So he made his brothers and their descendants swear to bring his remains with them when God eventually led them out of Egypt. He was so committed to and so certain of God's promise that he wanted to be buried in the promised land. In fact, the book of Hebrews later in the New Testament has a chapter called the Hall of Faith. Famous people from history who had faith in God. And in that passage, it says about Joseph, by faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Joseph's faith points us to the first aspect of God and who he is. God is a God of promise. All throughout the Bible, we're encouraged to trust and to have faith because God promises things. And so these bones are mentioned here because they're a reminder to the people that the foundation of all they believe about God, the answer to all the questions that they have about God, begin with him being a God of promise. And if they're anything like you and me, the moment that they begin to head south instead of north, doubts about God begin to creep into their mind. Is God really the one leading us? If he is, then why are we going this way? Is he really on our side? Is he really for us? Is he really good? Can we trust him? 
And aren't these the same kind of questions that you find yourself asking? One of my favorite movies is called Inception. It's a movie with Leonardo DiCaprio from a few years ago. In the movie, it takes place slightly in the future, and people have learned how to break into other people's minds through their dreams. And Leonardo DiCaprio plays a thief who gets hired to break into people's minds through their dreams and steal their secrets. The only problem that he runs into is that the more time you spend in other people's dreams, the more real they become. And so it becomes very easy to forget what's real and what's the dream, to forget what reality really is, to forget what's true and to become trapped in this false world. So DiCaprio's character has what he calls a totem. It's an item that reminds him of what's real and what's only in the dream. And so for him, he has a little toy spinning top. And when he spins it in the dream world, it stays spinning forever. And in the real world, it eventually stops and it falls down. And so every time that he doubts which world that he's in, he spins that top as a reminder of what's really true. And so in a similar way, this is what the bones of Joseph do for the people of Israel. When they begin to doubt what's true, what's real about God and his promises, they're to remember the bones of Joseph and the promise of God to bring them to the land even when they appear to be heading in the totally wrong direction. And God does this throughout the Bible. Over and over again, he calls on his people to establish symbols of remembrance. And I want you to think about how absolutely gracious that is. When we doubt, when we forget God's promises, when anxiety about what's coming in the future keeps us up at night, When we ask those questions, God, who are you? Are you really good? Are you really for me? He doesn't look at us with frustration. He doesn't look at us and say, are you serious? After everything I've done for you, you still have all these doubts? No, instead he assures us. So ask yourself, what are the spinning tops? Or what are the bones of remembrance that God has given you? What are the stories of God's faithfulness and his promises that you can fall back on in those moments of doubt or those moments where God seems to be leading you in a direction that doesn't make any sense to you? I want to encourage you to reflect on those symbols of his faithfulness so that they're the first thing that come to your mind in the moments of uncertainty. Now, for some of you, that's actually really difficult to hear because you don't have many of those symbols of remembrance to fall back on. Life has been really difficult, and God has seemed silent far too often. Maybe things have happened around you 
or things have happened to you that make it really hard to keep God's faithfulness from being overwhelmed by your sadness or your anger. Death, sickness, violence, abuse, addiction are just some of the things that can destroy our memory of God's faithfulness. So let me first say I understand that. I've had some of these things happen to me and around me as well. There are times when I would love to just sit and reflect on the steadfastness of God's love and his faithfulness, but images of these other things cover my mind like a cloud and they don't give me any peace. So I understand. But I want to offer that I think in the New Testament, that's why God has given us what we call the sacraments. Baptism, the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, do these in remembrance of me. You see, God knows that the brokenness of the world blinds us to him and his faithfulness. That it attacks our hope. It attacks our memories of his promises. So, in his love and in his grace, he establishes sacraments, not just as symbols, but as real spiritual encouragement to our faith week after week. One of the key documents of faith that our denomination uses is called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And in it, it asks a series of questions to help us learn about God. And one of those questions is this. It says, if a Christian is struggling with doubt, should he or she still come to take the Lord's Supper? Do you know what the answer is? They may and they ought to come so that their faith may be strengthened. How wonderful is that news? That God is a God of promise. So the people are leaving the land of Egypt. They have the bones of Joseph as a reminder that God is a God of promise. But there are some times in life where promise can seem a long way off. It can seem like something in the future. So is God only a God of promise? Only a God of what's going to happen in the future? Or is he more? Let's look at verses 21 and 22 again. It says, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So now, after all that God has done, he appears before the people as a pillar of cloud and fire. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be? Seriously, imagine that you're leaving Egypt. You're being led by a God who just killed all the firstborn of Egypt because of the sin of their nation. He spared you not because you were better than them, but because blood was shed for your sin. 
So you know that he's more holy, he's more pure than you can imagine. God's appeared twice as fire before this. First to Abraham in Genesis 15, he appears as a flaming torch that makes a covenant promise to Abraham. And then second, when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And in that instance, he warned Moses, don't come near me. Because he's so holy that Moses can't be near the bush. So both of those times serve to demonstrate God's power and his holiness. And so now we know this is not a God to be taken lightly. And now he appears in a massive pillar of cloud and fire. And we know it's massive because it says that the light from it allowed a group of, we estimate, two million people to see well enough to travel at night. So I would have to imagine that only knowing what the Israelites know about this God from the past few weeks, this had to be one of the most terrifying things they had ever seen. But yet at the same time, it's also a miracle of comfort. God is not just a God of promise. He's also a God of presence. If God was only a God of promise, he could have guaranteed them the promised land and said, go and take it. But God has greater plans for them than just a promise. He actually wants to be present with them. So how does this presence work in this passage? How is he both present with them, but also a pillar of cloud and fire? Well, I think we see in the text that he's present with them as both a protector and a guide. The very nature of his appearance as cloud and fire is protection from the elements. If you've ever been in a desert before, deserts are known for their massive temperature shifts from night and day. Because there's not very much water in the air, the heat of the day doesn't get retained so when the sun goes down, the temperature drops massively. So it might be 100 degrees in the day and in the 30s or 40s in the night. So what better protection from the burning hot sun than a cloud? And what better protection from the freezing cold nights than a pillar of fire? But God isn't only concerned with protecting their physical bodies. He's also concerned with protecting their hearts from temptation. Look back at verse 17. We're told that the reason that God doesn't take the people directly north is that he doesn't want them to face war so quickly after leaving Egypt. Remember that earlier in Exodus, God, it says, had seen and heard the people suffering in slavery for the last 400 years. He knows how easily their spirits could be broken, how easily they could be tempted to return to Egypt when they face difficulties. And so he protects them from that temptation. 
But God doesn't want to simply protect his people. He also wants to lead them. And we see that in the other way that he's presented. He's presented as a guide. Verse 21 says that he went before them and he led them along the way. I don't know about you, if you've ever hired a guide for anything. One summer I was in Charleston, a great historic city to tour, and my wife and I had a tour guide who showed us around the city. So maybe you've hired a tour guide before, or maybe you were visiting a new, another country or a new city, or maybe even just if you've used Google Maps or if you've used a GPS for, for a long trip. The reason that tour guides or Google Maps or whatever it is are helpful is not simply that they know where the trip needs to end. They're helpful because they know the best way to get you to the end. They know the best route to take. They know about obstacles or roadblocks ahead. Or in the case of the tour guide when I was in Charleston, there were certain things he wanted me to see, to learn about. And so a tour guide's job isn't just to get you from point A to point B as fast as possible. It's actually to accomplish something in you during the journey. The tour guide wants you to come away from the tour different than when you started. And so when God guides the Israelites in what appears to be the wrong direction out of Egypt, this is what he's doing. He's doing something in his people as much as he's leading them to a destination. And over the next few weeks, as we read more in the book of Exodus, we're going to see what it is that God's doing in the Israelites. But the famous pastor Matthew Henry says it this way, if we think that God is not leading his people the nearest way, we can be sure that he's leading them the best way. And we'll see this when we come to the journey's end. Now, that's an easy thing to read about. It's a much more difficult thing to live. We can look at the Israelites and we can say, of course you should trust God and follow him. Look at everything he's done. But do you do that when you feel like God is taking you in a direction that you don't want to go? I'm sure that everyone in here has had a time where they felt like God was leading in a totally different direction than they wanted to go. Many of you feel like that right now, this morning. God's word is clearly telling you what direction to go, but everything inside you wants to go another direction. Maybe at work it feels like every single door is opening in a certain direction, but then all of a sudden one closes and you're redirected somewhere else. You don't get the promotion or the new position that you thought that God was opening all the doors for. When I was first exploring church planting, it felt like God was opening door after door to lead us back to Kentucky. But then out of nowhere, one of those doors closed. And the next thing you know, a door opens to Winter Haven, Florida. But that wasn't easy. That that's one of the most difficult things about choosing in these moments to follow God is guess where God takes the Israelites? Into the wilderness, into the desert. 
and they don't come to the promised land for another 40 years. And so choosing to follow God's lead and God's guidance is not going to be the easiest or the fastest path or the one that we thought we would go on or the one we really wanted to go on. But we can be certain that it's the best path because God is just as concerned with forming me and you into a people of faith and trust as he is in getting us to a destination. Now, that doesn't make it any easier to struggle through the wilderness, but it does give us hope, the hope that God is present with us on the journey as a protector and a guide. I want to end by talking for just a minute about the problem that this text leaves me with. It's a really simple problem, but it's maybe not one you've thought of. God has never appeared to me as a pillar of cloud and fire. I don't have this miracle standing in front of me every day, assuring me of God's promises and his presence, guiding me and protecting me as I go throughout the wilderness and the desert of life. And so it's easy for me to think, God, if you just appeared to me like that, then everything would be great. I wouldn't have any problem trusting you if you just showed up like that. But then I'm forced to remember what happened to God's people after this, later in Exodus. They had the pillar of cloud and fire, yet they still later doubt and want to return to Egypt. They still make a golden calf to worship instead of the God that's right in front of them. They wandered in the desert for 40 years because of their own sinful doubting and disbelief, even though they had a pillar of cloud and fire in front of them. So if they had that and they still disbelieved and still didn't trust God, then what hope do you and I have? Well, I actually think that we have a greater hope because I think that we have a greater pillar of cloud and fire. We have Jesus. You see, the pillar of cloud and fire was present, but it was unapproachable by the Israelites. Because of God's holiness, the fire would have killed anyone that got close to it. The blood on the doorpost protected the, Israel, the Israelites for one night, but they had to perform sacrifices over and over and over again to pay for their sin. But when Jesus came, he was no longer unapproachable. When Jesus spilled his blood for us, there was no more need for continual sacrifices for sin. And when Jesus sends his spirit to live inside of his people in Acts chapter 2, do you remember how it appears to them? Acts 2 says that tongues of fire appeared and rested on each of the disciples. So that when we're forgiven and made holy by Jesus, the fire of God no longer burns us. It lives inside of us. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
the pillar of cloud and fire now lives inside of us as the indwelling Holy Spirit. And one day, we'll see Jesus again. We'll see him as the true pillar of cloud and fire. The book of Revelation tells us this about when Jesus returns from heaven. It says, he will be wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. What a glorious day that will be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of promise, that we can trust, that we can have faith in, that you're a God of presence, who wants to be with us, who wants to protect us, who wants to guide us, and that ultimately you wanted that so much that you came as a man. You came as Christ to die for us, to pay for our sin, and to make you approachable again. We pray that we would trust and have faith in you as the great pillar of cloud and fire. Amen. Amen. We're bound for the promised land. We're not there yet. So as you go, go being confident in the promise of the Lord's benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace now and forevermore.